Welcome back, folks, to episode 86 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Uh, today on the podcast, we have a very interesting guest from uh, right here in Manitoba. He's a prof at the University of Manitoba researcher, um, Jim Roth. And he's on today. We're going to be talking uh, about his Arctic Fox research that he's done around Hudson Bay, around Churchill there. And uh, some pre- pretty interesting stuff, if you guys are listening or anything like me um i mean i'm always interested in uh kind of i don't know anything i can grasp onto in the in the realm of nature out there so uh he kind of talks about the influence uh that the foxes have actually on uh the environment locally uh the fox dens and how they change the landscape there a little bit uh and how climate change is affecting them and uh, we even talked a little bit about the relationship between harvesters and researchers in in some regards too so stay tuned for that but right now uh myself and tristan here are on the line sheldon is on the road right now so he can't be joining us tonight but uh tristan's over in i guess just across the river from me right now so uh tristan how's it going tonight oh not bad like a beautiful day out today in lockport uh barely any wind it felt it, I think the temperature got up to over 20, and it felt much warmer than that without the wind. Um, we've had a windy few days here, so took advantage of it, got out, got some plants put in the garden. We basically have our entire garden set up um, in the ground now, so whether it's the raised beds or the actual in-ground stuff, uh, like all our vegetables are, are in. So hoping we don't get hit by frost, but super excited to start another growing season what's your what's your thoughts on the forecast for the end of the week there so um it's it's going to be upwards of like 34 degrees celsius i think on friday you for or against that well i can't do much about it so i there's no use arguing with the weather i think but uh as far as uh my uh disposition goes um let's just say that uh being of the fairer persuasion i've never been it's always been a game of sun management when it gets that hot for me and not so much uh just sitting out and catching rays yeah so yeah it's a little warm for me too uh i'm I'm, i don't know it'll be tough yeah hey i didn't i didn't get to sit down with old jim there and uh talk foxes with y'all but uh did you figure out what a group of foxes is called? I don't think I asked. I don't think we asked them that that question. No, you didn't. No, do you do, know what it's called? What it is? I don't. I had to Google it. It's called something weird. It's called a skulk. A skulk. S K U L K. No yeah. way. Yeah. Interesting. I I didn't know. I figured it might be something interesting. I'm glad I googled it because I I had not seen that before. So I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the podcast. Though it sounds like it was a uh, really intriguing one. And like you said, always interested about like how the science and nature and ecosystems seem to interact. And uh, as we learn more, we always uh, seem to draw closer. Yeah, Jim's Jim's um, a super cool guy too. He's he's just one of those uh, fellows that just have a deep wealth of knowledge uh, around lots of stuff. And he just seems like he's just constantly searching for answers to stuff that that is uh, is unknown out there. So really interesting really enjoyed the conversation with him nice and uh what's what's new on your end there chase 
Oh, man. Um, just trying to keep busy on my end. Today, we headed out to the Broken Head Trail. Uh, me and the boys went out there this morning, and it was a freaking awesome morning to be out there. Like you said, just great weather. No wind, no bugs. And uh, if anybody hasn't gone out there yet, I highly recommend checking it out. So um, I, I know people are always looking for stuff to do, stuff to check out. It's a handicap accessible walk. And it's about, it's just over a mile and a half there and back kind of thing. Um, the only barrier you would have to have with somebody, excuse me, that uh, might might be using a, a device to assist their the mobility is that uh, the gate to, the, to access it isn't actually open. So you got to get around that gate and there's, there's little walking trails, but it would be tough to lift if somebody had like a, a electric wheelchair for, to say might be tough to maneuver around that but um either way if you're looking for something to do i highly recommend that hike there's tons of cool stuff it's like it kind of reminded me of of uh being on the west coast there with those those cedar forests and a much smaller version of it but you get to see something that i don't think you can really enjoy anywhere else in manitoba because those 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 cedar forests are just woven so tightly together that there's there's no way you'd be able to walk through that um, without this this path through there and, and actually enjoy it. So uh, it gives you a, a really cool perspective of uh, a really neat environment in there, and uh, it's easy walking. I took the kids today; they ran the entire way pretty much. Uh, loaded them up on some snacks at the uh, at the end point. To, fuel them up for the ride home but um yeah a great great outing i thought and uh yeah just planning trying to plan some fishing here maybe a little fly fish on the red we'll see what happens if we have time try doing some morale hunting haven't found one yet hmm. <laughs> and uh yeah that's about it man yeah that uh those cedar forests smell great too i know there's a there's a smaller one in birds hill park here which is just uh a little northeast of the city of winnipeg but yeah it's uh it's definitely it's always great to to walk through the cedar woods for sure yeah yeah definitely have have you been using the uh the eye hunter app for any mushroom picking i did I did. I've been using it quite a bit for mushroom pick. I actually used it today on the trail too, on the Broken Head Trail to see how far the boardwalk went because uh, I just didn't know how much progress I was actually making with the kids. But um, I, I have been using it for uh, for mushroom picking too, just to scout out some areas. It's really good because you can see the vegetation types. Is um, the from what I know, mushrooms generally grow the, the ones in our area here in like a poplar stand so you can see kind of d determine the different vegetation types from the satellite imagery so that's kind of how i've been focusing in on some areas but um overall apparently the the uh the mushroom the morale um productivity has been pretty low from from what i heard so dry uh, spring yeah super dry so tough spring for them and what about you man um you know i've actually been using the iHunter app quite a bit already too cuz i've i've been messaging some buddies around um they're they're applying for draws in manitoba here and so the the draws actually will close 
uh, today. We're, we're talking on the 31st. Um, so last day to get your draw in. Um, if you, if you're listening to this too late, but, uh, yeah, so they've been, they've been chatting about places to hunt and stuff like that. And it, it actually makes it super easy because they can not only look at the game hunting area that they're, they're intending to target, but we can actually talk, do just some really like high level scouting right in the app and talk about potential areas that they could be hunting or if they want to shift focus somewhere, um, things like that. So even, even just, doing the draw application itself has become just that much easier with that app. So, yeah. Um, and, and the public land subscription, of course, too. Right. So, yeah. And I, I'm pumped about the, uh, the, um, landowner map subscription that's going to be coming out here in the very near future. That's going to be super handy. Excuse me. If, uh, if anybody listening wants to take advantage of a, a awesome discount for the iHunter app, Plug in the code Panoramic30 when you go to web.ihunterapp.com and that's going to get you 30% off the first year of your public land subscription. And uh, like I said, guys, or folks, this is something I use, if not on a daily basis, a weekly basis. And I, I still don't know how to use everything on the app. And so there's there's lots to know, lots to learn. It's an awesome tool to have in your in your pocket pretty much so check them out and uh so you got the got your turkey in your freezer right um, i'm staring yep. at your background right now on skype and it's it's uh, uh, this awesome photo of you holding your bird what have you Great been up photo. to with that thing have you have you tested it out at all have you tried any of it yeah well you were out camping next to me and i i dropped you off a little goodie bag there but um we did the we did the turkey breast on the the pit barrel. That actually didn't hit the freezer. We just it sat in a dry brine for about four days, and then I rinsed it off and did her up on the pit barrel for a few hours, and gave her a little like maple mustard glaze. And Bob's your uncle on that one, and we made turkey sandwiches out of it. So those were stellar. For camp especially it was nice a it was nice being out camping even though we couldn't visit with anyone um we're camping up in hecla which was uh we got kind of decent weather it was raining in the beginning but um that that hot turkey sandwich coming off the pit barrel let me tell you that boosts morale real quick in camp um and once again just another testimony to pit barrel haven't cooked one bad thing on it maybe those goose legs but we won't talk about those goose legs <laughs> That's we'll chalk that up to user error. Yeah, user error. Um, but pit barrel never fails to perform. Like you said, Chase, we brought that thing out camping. Um, you loaded up in the back of your truck. We just kind of swapped duties with it a couple times, and was able to cook meals for uh, our own campsite there within the pit barrel. So again, awesome cooker system. It was great to be out camping. So if you're looking at the pit barrel cooker system where can you find that chase you got to go to pitbarrelcookers.com or pitbarrelcooker.com i believe and uh check them out there so they're based out of uh louisville and free shipping stateside so um if you're down south check them out they got they always have some amazing deals going on there whether that's for your accessories or or uh or whatever 
um, in Canada, head over to their website and check out their maps for their where they sell the units in Canada and go pick yourself up one. They're a fraction of the cost of these expensive um, pellet cookers and guarantee you're going to be stepping up your flavor game from whatever else you got at home. So go check them out. And they're a little bit more rugged too, I think. I We've taken that thing ice fish. I don't know if the old pellet girl would make it ice fish. And oh, no, no, yeah. the tough. Yeah. It'd be pretty pretty dicey. Even some of the, the the adventures in the back of the truck, you know, I don't know how many miles you can put on the old pellet grill without without having to replace some stuff on that baby. Yeah, you know what else saved my ass camping too, and you'll appreciate this. You probably know. I think I know. Yeah, it was a wool love for <laughs> sure, one hundred percent. Save my ass. I not only did I underdress on like my exterior layers. I'm still on the hunt for like a good like like rainwater sh- shell. Like everyone's trying to sell me Gore-Tex and I just get Gore-Tex soaked all the time I find. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wearing like that plaid jacket and some jeans in the boat. But the I can't believe how warm the wool of actually kept me until I got soaked. Even then it kept me warm. I was just soaked and warm. Yeah. So I, 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 no, not waterproof, but... Still keeping you warm, kind of scenario. I still haven't got used to uh, like um, my my brain hasn't really caught up to uh, totally um, the total experience with wool love because in the past I've always like gone wet or like when I'm hunting and I get sweaty and then my brain still goes into like uh, past experience mode where it's like all right, well prepare to be cold for the next two hours until you dry out about the wool love it's always just like you're you're just wet and like you're not cold so yeah that's pretty cool it's awesome yeah and uh it dried out quick too when i hung it up so that was that was nice Mm -hmm. so got it up got it up off and then hang in got got dry quick was back in it the next day without complication and maybe that antimicrobial stuff really helped out too with not having to wash it over the weekend as well <laughs> definitely um, yeah so we'll love save the day camping that's for sure and i'm actually surprised every day I, I wash it when i got home i was like eh, i probably won't need this again this year yeah temp dip want to do some work outside and back into the wool love i go so it needs one more wash i'm assuming here before it kind of like the 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 base base layers might not be needed as frequently we'll say mm-hmm. right on and if you guys want to get into some wool love go check them out wool.love that's their website wool.love definitely check out their new stuff there they got some new golf shirts some underwear and they of course have like the the regular gear there their long underwear and and uh, uppers and stuff like that and toques so socks all kinds of great stuff to keep you warm wherever you're at. Yeah. And camping felt, like I said, it felt like a success even though we couldn't visit. Got some walleye in the freezer. How did that feel? Ooh, man. Felt good filling some, some walleye up, man. Tell you that much. Some some good and like nice size eaters, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Ended up uh, dishing some out to some people already. So not 
not all of it left in the freezer. We ate some too here at home, so it's uh, I don't know. Plan on saving a it little goes bit. Fast. Yeah. We uh we hit the catch and cook a couple times too here, and we just had fish tacos tonight. And I think the the secret ingredient to fish tacos now is gonna be that pickled onion. It just it's like the it adds the the little touch at the end there. Maybe my what I might do is like blend the onions with jalapenos, like make a pickled jalapeno onion mix. Mm, nice. Just like and that's toss just that on there. Yeah, that's just a uh, like a refrigerator style pickle, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. Pickled onion, I mean, yeah. So, cool. I like that, man. And, uh, yeah, I guess the last thing I want to say uh, to everybody before we start rolling here, I will have a new YouTube video coming out very soon, either today when you're listening to this or the next day. So, make sure you check that out too. Head to our YouTube page, Panoramic Outdoors. And, without further ado... Let's roll. Jim Roth. So we're joined today by a guy that I got recommended to have a conversation with. And it actually happened in Churchill, Manitoba. I was up there doing some work and I ran into an old friend. We started talking. And the one thing that I did know, or not know, I do know about my friend from up in Churchill. He's he's very connected to the to nature and to the earth and some of the smaller things that happen in the big Arctic. He's very interested in a lot of things, and so he recommended to talk to the guy we have on next. So, thanks for coming on to the show, Jim Roth. Well, thanks for having me. Well, Jim, it's uh, sorry, it's been a little bit of a, a mess around here. It's been a long day, I think, on every every side of the province here. Where everyone's pretty busy, but we finally got you on, and we're going to talk a little bit of uh, some of the kind of like the smaller habitats, I guess, in the subarctic region of of northern Canada. But before we get to that, I want to ask you our famous five burning questions. And what this is, is it basically uh, gets our listeners kind of uh, familiar with you. And it kind of just brings us into the podcast. So if you're ready for them, I'm going to shoot them off to you. You can answer them in short form, long form, or however you feel fit. Sure. Okay. Let's do it. And then the first question I got for you, if you had one last meal, what would it be? And what would you wash it down with? Oh, well... Um, what would my last meal be? I don't know. I got really excited about geese listening to one of your previous podcasts uh, <laughs> earlier today. So I take a goose and wash it down with some kind of IP, I think. I, nice. I, that's my, I think, yeah. Big fan of- right on. My uh, next question for you, if you had a concert, I don't know if you're a big music guy, but if you had a concert to go to, alive or dead, who would you go and watch? Rolling Stones. Oh, that's a good one. That'd be on my bucket list. They, yeah. <laughs> maybe that shows my age but uh, <laughs> sure the stones cool. right on so my next question is when you're not doing your day job what do you enjoy your free time what do you do in your free time oh or wow. do you get any do you get any free time i don't think <laughs> i have i was trying to figure out when i had any free time um you know i got into this career uh, i'm a professor in, in because you know i like what i do like going out in the land and in the forest and on the prairie or in the tundra and seeing what critters are up to. So the things I do for fun are the things I'm also doing for my job when I'm not stuck in the office or stuck at home working on the computer is going out and seeing wildlife and seeing what they're up to. So hiking and visiting some of the cool out of the way places. Nice. Uh, um, I, I'm just going to inject here for a second and I want to see what your answer is to this, Jim, because I know uh, obviously you know, there's a lot of people that love the thought of being a biologist 
and people that aren't biologists i think have this 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 grand idea that you just spend every day walking around the woods and interacting <laughs> with nature and all this stuff so um what i'm curious is what percentage of your time do you think you spend uh in nature for work and what percentage do you spend uh behind a desk would you say oh way more behind a desk uh absolutely i'm i'm <laughs> i'm fortunate is that it, that because of my my research up i got this long term research program up in the church there and and we go up uh before the snow melts in the early part of the of the summer and then later in the summer and you know i spend a lot more time in the field because that's what most of us got into this into this uh occupation for us because we like going out and, and exploring the habitats but i feel i feel really guilty because i should be sitting behind a computer um analyzing data writing papers going and getting more money so i can go up and and uh, do more research and try to understand the way the world works that's what i get really excited about is trying to figure out what's going on and uh, how do changes in, in one species affect others that, that it may come into contact uh, with. But yeah, but so I do value my time in the field, even though I feel guilty that I should be, you know, sitting behind the computer uh, more. But I think that's where we get a lot of our good ideas is just by tromping around. You know, I hike on the tundra for hours uh, with my grad students, um, chit-chatting about things we see, trying to come up with, see something weird, um, and you try to come up with an explanation for it. That's, that's what we call a hypothesis when I'm sitting down my, behind my computer you know, with my science hat on. Uh, so I think it's really valuable. And I think you do have to have both. Um, even though I don't feel as productive maybe sometimes in my research program in terms of stuff that, that people are counting, the bean counters at the university. Um, I think, uh, yeah, getting out, getting out and seeing stuff is, is a really important part of it. But I don't do that very often just for fun because I spend, you know, I'm able to spend a lot of time as part of my job, going out and looking. So, yeah, if you try to ask me what I actually do when I'm uh, not working, <laughs> sometimes I just stare, sit and stare and look at a wall <laughs> try to recover. Um, my last question for you tonight for the five burning questions is if you had a perfect vacation, where would you go? Oh, a perfect vacation. I'd like to go somewhere in the world I've never been before. Um, but I've gotten to go to most of the places I wanted to go through, through work. Um, I don't know. I'd probably go to some place in the high Arctic I've never been before. I think that'd be cool. I had a, I was just missed out an opportunity to go to the Antarctic when I was a graduate student. A buddy of mine couldn't get in touch with. This is before cell phones. He couldn't get in touch with me. Couldn't reach. And so he found somebody else to go with him. But I think that'd be awesome. Places that not many other people get to go. Those are the places that I find exciting. Yeah, for sure. I would, I would second that. I mean, I have a fascination when it comes to like reading and reading like Ernest Shackleton books and stuff like that, where, you know, those endurance and oh, there's a bunch of them there that I haven't got to yet. So I don't know. It's a, there's oh, a fascination yeah. about being in nowhere, nowhere, nobody's land, you know? And yes. And you read about what those old time explorers went through and the challenges they faced and overcame or didn't overcome in some cases. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. All right, on you, uh, Jason. Do you have another question for him on the five burning? Are we good um, there? You pretty much covered uh, actually most of them that I had written down, and a couple of them um, I thought were pretty unique. But my my last one that I have written down here uh, is relevant to the conversation that we're having today, and um, seeming that it's about foxes. Jim, what's your favorite thing about foxes? In particular, we'll say Arctic foxes. My favorite thing about them? 
one thing I admire about them is they're really, they're tenacious. They just go, they move huge distances across the landscape. They'll go out across Hudson Bay and visit Quebec, come back. Um, and uh, they can deal with such extreme conditions. They have all these adaptations for dealing with the, the extreme cold, low food availability um, in the Arctic. And uh, yeah, and yet they can produce huge numbers of pups. They have huge litters. I don't know, they're just really fascinating. They have a lot of characteristics that have made them successful in this really, what we would consider an inhospitable environment that, uh, I don't know, just really, really cool. Yeah, that's sweet. I was, um, I got many questions about the fox here in a bit, but where, where I'd like to start is kind of where you cut your teeth in the industry. Like you're, you're um, obviously doing a lot of work in Churchill. How'd that all start? Like, was that your plan right from the start or? Well, no, I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, when I went to university, I was, I took me, uh, I think I was in my third year before I finally declared a major. I was undeclared. I didn't know what I wanted to do. People said, you're good at math. You should be an engineer. I said, okay, I'll try that. And that didn't get me as excited as maybe you might get some people. Um, finally got into biology. Actually, I grew up, my father was a, was a high school biology teacher, but he has a master's in biology. He would go out in the, in the summertime and uh, he'd get various contracts for the, I grew up in the state of Kansas with uh, Kansas Game and Fish or, or the biological um, survey and he'd do different projects and so he'd take me along to be his little field assistant um, and then he'd also take high school kids along be his uh, research assistant so i grew up spending all summer out on the prairies in kansas or in uh collecting uh, he got into this long-term project collecting legend nesting birds or collecting data on lead nesting birds of prey so we'd go out and, and uh, catch uh juvenile hawks and owls and band them and we'd work until the sun went down and put up our tent wherever it was um whenever it got dark wherever it happened to be out of the prairie and then you know get up and keep going the next day and so that was the kind of stuff I really enjoyed doing and so when he'd be busy writing up all his notes I'd go out and catch uh, um, you know whatever I could find any little critters lizards or snakes or, or uh, rabbits or whatever um, just because I like catching critters so when I finally went to university I figured I needed to figure out something else to do because that was the only thing I really knew is, is doing ecology kinds of stuff and field work um, but it turns out that's the stuff I really like. So that's what I ended up um, back into and doing. So, so yeah, um, went to graduate school in, uh, in Minnesota and uh, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my PhD. And we had this professor visiting from the University of Saskatchewan, giving us a seminar on his research. Uh, Dr. Malcolm Ramsey worked on polar bears. He was a physiological ecologist um, trying to understand polar bear physiology and how that uh, affected what they do on the landscape. And he just kind of mentioned in the middle of his seminar that uh, these polar bears, they often uh, catch a seal and eat all the blubber, but leave the, the carcass, leave the meat, because they don't need to eat a lot of meat in winter. That was some of the interesting physiological adaptations he was looking into. Um, but then he just mentioned because they leave this carcass behind, then you get these little scavengers, Arctic foxes that follow polar bears around to, to scavenge on the carcass of seals. Uh, that the bears have killed. And I thought that was brilliant. What a brilliant foraging strategy. Let somebody else do all the work and you go and, and clean up on their leftovers. So that's how I got really interested in, in working in the North, working up uh, in Churchill. So got my PhD, went off and did a few other things for, for a few years. Um, and uh, uh, my wife's a, a professor also. 
And so eventually we, we finally found a university that had two jobs at the same place at the same time. Moved to Winnipeg. And so I resumed my work um, uh, up in Churchill uh, that I started as a graduate student. So that's, and that's what I've been, been focusing the last 11 or 12 years of doing. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, so I guess <laughs> I, have, I was kind of just thinking about what you do with uh, your field work and stuff up in Churchill. A lot of your your research is with the uh, like Arctic fox, but can you maybe just go through some of the different species you can find in the subarctic and like maybe the differences between an Arctic fox and a red fox? I know there's a lot of folk probably that listen that may have never seen an Arctic fox and they may not realize they are actually quite smaller in my opinion, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Arctic foxes, um, Arctic foxes are really cool because they look so different from other foxes. So you, most people are familiar with the classic red fox the big pointy ears, but there's other species of foxes, the kit foxes out on the prairie, um, um, other species, species of species of foxes around the world. Arctic foxes look pretty different because they've undergone, they've had to adapt to dealing with the cold, the Arctic conditions. So they're about two thirds the size of a red fox on average. Um, there's a lot of variation. There's some overlap in body size, but they've got um, kind of a short blunt snout, tiny short little ears. They've got kind of short legs the shorter tails. Um, and this is an adaptation for preserving body heat. If you have really long appendages, you're going to lose more body heat. So the surface area to volume ratio of Arctic foxes is quite small. So they look really different than lots of other um, foxes in the same genus as red foxes. Um, so much so that people used to put them in a different genus. Huh. They were in the genus Alopex for when my career. When I, certainly when I first started working on them. And it wasn't until they started looking at the genetics of Arctic foxes that I found they're actually really closely related to the kit foxes in the desert southwest that you find in the, in the, in the arid areas, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, California. And that they actually are members, they should be classified as members of the, of the genus Volpe. So they did put them back into the same genus as the other foxes. But the fact that they look so different just shows the strong selective pressures um, that the Arctic imposes um, on these critters that, that lead to these adaptations, this really thick fur that you see um, on them in the summer, really dense fur. Um, so Arctic foxes are one of the, one of the only uh, canids, uh, members of the dog family, foxes and nuts and, and those kinds of critters that, that'll change colors. So they're white in the winter. A lot of people have seen this picture of a, of a fluffy white Arctic fox against the snow. Um, and then they're brown in the summer. Um, so they, they have this brown summer cold that's, that's not so thick um, in this one. And that's what we that's what we see. And then this time of year, they're going through the process of uh, changing from one color to the other. So they look really scraggly, mangy, uh, but it's just their natural natural mold. So, uh, so yeah, so these Arctic foxes, uh, again, they look very different from what we think of as a classic red fox, but are relatively closely related. Body mass wise, what it, what's the, the comparison to like a red fox? Or is there a significant uh, difference there? Yeah, yeah, they are about um, about two thirds the size of, of a red fox on average. So we, we uh, you do find large Arctic foxes that are larger than the smallest red foxes. So there is some overlap. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we do uh, get, get carcasses of, of foxes from uh, fur trappers and we collect tissue samples from them. And one thing we do is weigh them all. And so we've got a nice distribution with some overlap. Um, we've been uh, catching foxes uh, on the tundra. One of my grad students has been looking at space use and looking at the 
long distance movements and home ranges. And, and sometimes you gotta, you catch a little Arctic fox or, or a big Arctic fox that you need to put a red fox collar on. And sometimes you catch a little red fox and you need an Arctic fox collar. Hmm. So there's, there's quite a bit of, of variation. Right. And what, uh, I'm curious as to the cross fox or the silver fox, I think people commonly oh, call yes. it. Because that, so that's, that's one thing that we always seen quite a bit around Churchill was, uh, you know, that, that, that different kind of unique looking fox. Yeah. So when I first went to Churchill, um, you know, I knew about red foxes and Arctic foxes. And somebody mentioned these cross foxes. What are cross foxes? And I was told, well, they're a cross between an Arctic fox and a red fox. And I said, okay. And I believed that for about a year until I read into it. And I found out that's not it at all. Cross fox is the color phase of red foxes. Oh. So red foxes come in three color phases. There's the, there's the red phase, the cross phase, which is a kind of a, um, kind of a brown body and a black underneath. And then they're, they're, and it varies quite a bit how much black and how much, how much uh, brown or reddish brown that they have on them. And then there's the silver phase, which is pretty much all black or silvery grayish black uh, color. All of them have the white tip on the tail, though. They have the classic um, tip of the tail. It's just like a red fox does. Um, but these are just color morphs. They're, you can find siblings in the same litters um, of all three color phases. There's hmm. just some genetic difference. And then the Arctic foxes actually have two color phases, uh, the white phase that we're most familiar with uh, in Canada. And then there's a blue color phase, which is, which is kind of a slate gray uh, color. It's a lot more rare. It's a lot more common in Iceland. About 70% of the, of the Arctic fox in Iceland blue phase, and about 2% in Manitoba for the different historical uh, harvest records. So here in Manitoba, we actually have five um, foxes. If you look at the harvest records, they classify them differently, but it's just two species, three variants of red fox and two variants of arctic fox oh, that's cool yeah these these but these these other alternative color phases of red foxes for some reason are a lot more common in the north and i don't know why you're much more likely to see a cross fox or a silver fox farther north hmm. huh, that's super interesting and i like i already know what the title of this podcast episode is going to be this is going to be called like what the fox i think because <laughs> it's a lot of fox talk already there you go yeah yeah but these, these size differences between Arctic fox and red fox are also fascinating because um, they are competitors and and you they when they do come into contact, there is some aggression. And actually, red fox are known to kill um, Arctic foxes uh, if they come across them, especially in the winter when resources are really, really low. But that doesn't always happen. So we have seen uh, our, our state at a camp it's owned by the province out in the Clifton National Park. There's a fox den um, nearby, and we were up early one morning, and a, and a red fox was you know, trotting by camp and started going by the, the Arctic fox den. And the Arctic fox saw the red fox and tore after it. They chased each other, or the red Arctic fox was chasing the red fox around the tundra for like a half hour, you know, trying to just get this red fox away. And it's because the Arctic fox had pups uh, in the den. It was very cautious of this predator that we know will kill um, arctic foxes being near um near its pups and so it it had a lot more to lose it was willing to to escalate that encounter much more so the red fox was just looking for breakfast it's like man i'm sorry i just want to go away but the arctic fox wouldn't let red fox take off so so um most of the time, these encounters are not great for the Arctic fox because the red fox on average is bigger, but it can be the other way around. 
So that was fascinating to me because I always read about these uh, red foxes killing Arctic foxes, but in this case, the shoes on it. Yeah, I think there was a pretty a pretty uh, popular photo going around a couple of years ago of a, a red fox carrying half a carcass of a Arctic fox across the tundra. Yes. Yeah, there was. There was out at, at Cape Churchill. There was a professional uh, wildlife photographer who who got the shot of this this red fox and won some award for it. It was a pretty graphic mm-hmm. um, shot because there wasn't a whole lot left of the. Uh, I mean, you could tell it was an Arctic fox, but it was not a whole Arctic fox by that point. Um, so it was a little bit graphic, but I think it it from my perspective illustrates a story that I you know try to educate people about is is this interaction between these these two species um, that are sharing resources. And so when you're, when you're competing, there is a little incentive to try to bump off the competition sometimes. Definitely. But that's, there have been other instances um, last uh, fall up in Churchill, a uh, uh, buddy of mine sent me some photos of, uh, of uh, another interaction between red foxes and Arctic foxes. And the bears were coming by and scavenging some of the, of the Arctic foxes. Um, my wife works up in Churchill. Um, as well and she had a picture of a of a red fox or a, uh yeah it was a cross-faced red fox carrying around a head of an archer fox just just had the head just was kind of tooling around Jeez. which is pretty bizarre looking yeah so uh but yeah we think this is something that happens in the winter we don't see that kind of a, as much of that aggression in the summer with a lot more resources right yeah that's um the thing is is like when I was actually talking to Parker about this and we kind of mentioned it too in, in our talks in the, in the last little bit. But one thing that I find very interesting with, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to like circle back here, but one thing I find really interesting with uh, say the residents of Churchill or even in Northern communities altogether, they're very connected to, to the, the outdoors the nature, like flowers, everything. They, they, it seems like they know so much more about nature than say for myself personally. And I find that very interesting. So when I started reading some of the literature that you've been putting out and your, and your crew or your group has been putting out. I, I really got interested in just like that little habitat that, that the Fox is actually making in the Arctic and how that's like creating like this big kind of big, a big habitat for other species and other flowers, whatever it is. Um, So that's what I was kind of what hopefully we would get to. And I think this would be a perfect time to maybe start talking about that, that denning system and how that all works up there. Yeah, that's something that I've been really fascinated um, by for years. So these these Arctic foxes make these dens out of the tundra, especially up in, in the Churchill area. Good denning sites are really limited. It's really flat area. There's permafrost underneath. So when the, when the snow melts in the springtime, there's no place for the water to go. So it's a really wet landscape. But you have these beach ridges, uh, these these gravel ridges that have formed as the land is still rebounding from um, being depressed by the glaciers, uh, which was seen about 10,000 years ago. So, so the land is, you know, it's like when you have a, a wet sponge, you squish it, it gets compressed, and then slowly it, it, it reforms back into its natural shape. That's what the, the, uh, uh, the land is doing. So we, right here where we're sitting, um, you know, 20,000 years ago, there was, you know, three kilometers of ice squishing down the landscape. So uh, that's pushing back Hudson Bay as the land is rebounding. And so you have these gravel ridges, which are old beach ridges, places where used to be sand dunes right, right next to the um, right next to the coast of Hudson Bay. And these ridges are great places for Arctic foxes. And so there's not very many of them. So it's easy for us to, to survey these dens 
and find or serve these ridges and find the dens. And so because there's not very many places for these foxes to make their dens, they reuse den sites. Um, different generations of foxes coming in will reuse these den sites for hundreds of years. And so you've got all this activity going. These foxes are digging new burrows every year. Um, they've got really large litters. So you've got up to 10 foxes uh, being produced on average, 10 pups in a single litter. You can have up to 20 pups in a single litter. That's the maximum, it's the largest um, litter size of any mammal or one of the largest. Um, so, and all these things need to eat. And so their parents are bringing them back, back food. Um, the cool thing about Churchill, about the Arctic is you get 200 species of migratory birds moving up into this area uh, in the summertime. So a tremendous amount of diversity. That means lots of food to the foxes. The geese are probably the most important. So we get foxes bringing back geese um, for all these pups and all these pups are eating all these geese. And then there's so many geese, they just kind of, the remains just kind of rot. Um, leaching nutrients into the soil and all these foxes are pooping and peeing and they don't go anywhere when they're little and they're just adding nutrients back um, onto the landscape. So you get a very diff different vegetation that grows up on these den sites. So we can see um, a fox den uh, from like a kilometer away from the air in the summertime. It's just a bright green spot of really thick vegetation that stands out against the background on the tundra. So We've been using these, these characteristics of these dens for years to find the dens. So there's, there's about um, um, almost 100 fox dens on the tundra between Churchill and out to Cape Churchill and down south about a kilometer or about 60 kilometers uh, that we visit every year to try to assess reproductive activity, how things are changing over time as you know, food availability changes with, uh, with this one. So we've been using these vegetation characteristics, but, but in the last few years, we started looking at it a little more closely, trying to figure out what's going on with, with, uh, with these dens and how other species might be responding to this dinner activity. So we find that there's different kinds of plants growing up, growing on these dens that aren't found elsewhere. So these, these foxes are elevating the biodiversity of the vegetation on the tundra landscape. Um, soil uh, uh, nutrients are much higher. Greater concentration of nitrogen and phosphorus in the soil that these plants are getting taking advantage of, different kinds of plant species growing up, all this uh, much higher productivity. So overall plant biomass is higher on the dens than off the dens. And all this vegetation also attracts the snow. So you get much deeper snow that accumulates on fox dens, which is important for lots of species like these little lemmings, these little rodents that, uh, that have such a big impact on the food web up in the north. And so um, we find caribou, uh, are more attracted to these dens uh, in the summertime, more likely to see caribou on the dens and, and then off the den, off dens. We've used trail cameras to monitor visitation by other species, by foxes and then other species as well on these dens. And so, yeah, it's really fascinating. We, we call these foxes ecosystem engineers, how they alter the, basically the distribution of nutrients in the landscape. And that affects so many other species um, that are out in the top. Yeah, and kind of follow up there too. So the, the den site, can you kind of like paint us a picture like how big would this be or how big you said they've been around for hundreds of years like like do they vary in size are they usually generally the same size or they vary vary quite a bit in size i don't know how how big uh you know they can be as big as your dining room um or living room they can be small uh a bit smaller um but it changes a lot too so so they'll uh the vegetation changes over time as well so you get often when they first We've had a few dens that have shown up in spots where they didn't used to be dens. And so we've been able to kind of start to, to monitor how the vegetation changed over time. Um, grass will grow up eventually 
on most of these dens that have been around a long time, you get really thick willows. Um, all the roots are harder to dig through. And so they'll kind of make new burrows on the edge of the dens and that's where the grass will grow up. That's where the pups are hanging out and fertilizing the soil. And then eventually the, we think the, the uh, willows are spreading. Um, so yeah, so these dens, it's, yeah, thick green grass and, and maybe up to chest high willows, thick bushy willows and, and different proportions of those two, as well as in some cases, a lot of bare ground. That's kind of how you would, maybe visualize what these things are looking like. Right on. And the other question I was going to ask you a few minutes ago, you're talking about some of the food that the fox will eat. Uh, you said geese or, or uh, waterfowl um, and then lemmings. What, what other things do they eat on? And I'm assuming they're probably some sort of scavenger as well when it does get tough to hunt or is that false? Well, for sure. So, so probably the most important um, species for Arctic foxes year round are lemmings. Lemmings are these little rodents. They look like kind of mice without ears. They're a little blunt, round critter. Even close, it's about as close as you can come to a sphere of any animal that I can think of, or any mammal anyway. Um, and they're really famous for, for big changes in abundance. So they become super abundant, you know, populations crash, and four years later become super abundant again. And, and when, when these lemmings are super abundant, then the foxes have lots to eat. They can feed all these pups, and the fox population uh, takes off because they have such high uh, reproductive uh, potential. But then when lemming populations crash, they don't have as much food. Um, reproduction is not successful and the population uh, declines. But there are a lot of other things for them to eat seasonally. So uh, birds in the summer, like I mentioned, geese around in the summer. Um, and in the winter, uh, the ocean freezes and they can move out onto the frozen Arctic Ocean and follow polar bears around and scavenge on carcasses of seals the bears have killed or prey on seal pups. So they will go out uh, in uh, when ring seals are giving birth in layers on the ice, but under the snow, they'll find a birth layer. They'll dig down inside the, the birth layer and kill and consume um, the seal pups. And it can be a really important source of uh, mortality. In some populations, uh, it was estimated about 25% uh, of the pups on average, uh, seal pups were killed by Arctic foxes uh, every winter. So that's a pretty, pretty important um, interaction there with this terrestrial predator feeding on these marine resources. And that's something I've always found fascinating is these, these interactions across ecosystem boundaries. You have nutrients from the marine environment being brought onto land by the, by the foxes because these foxes are moving out uh, when they can forage on the ocean because they've got this ice as a platform used to hunt and scavenge. Huh, that's, that's really interesting too. And never really thought they'd go out. And do they go far on, on the, on the ice or? Oh yeah. Fairly... Oh, they, right. they can go, they can move a couple thousand kilometers, uh, straight line distance. So we've had, we, we know some of the foxes that were captured in our study area. We put, um, satellite collars on them have, uh, gone all the way across to Quebec and then headed North from there. Um, uh, yeah. They, they, will, they will move really, really long distances. And it was really fascinating to me uh, being up in the Churchill area. The first couple of years I went up uh, was uh, in the summertime when it's so windy. It's so hard to get around and you're trying to you know, get around the lakes and hiking or using your ATV or whatever to get here or there. Um, really limited where you can go uh, until the snow hits. So first it gets cold, everything turns to ice, snow falls, and transportation is so easy. Traveling is so easy there. You get in your skidoo and you, you plug in your GPS. I want to go to this point and it says, okay, you need to go, you know, 
7.23 kilometers at a bearing of this degree and just go in a straight line and then you're there. It's awesome. And so I'm thinking about dispersal opportunities for the wildlife as well. Winter is the time uh, they can move. Uh, summer's hard, but winter is, is everything is frozen, covered with snow. You can just go. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I got a non-Fox question and it was about those ring seals. So you're saying that they, they'll have their pups, the seals, they're called pups, right? Yeah. Yeah, they'll have them between the layers of snow and the ice. Like they make little dens themselves. Yes, yeah, oh, yeah exactly. That's cool. So they have to give birth um, on top of the ice until the pups can, you know, grow big enough and, and go through a molt, um, put in enough enough fat that they can they can do okay in the cold water. And do you know how long that like how long is that process? Do you know? It's a few weeks. It's actually really quick. They grow pretty. Oh, really? Well, from what we would consider. So yeah, I don't remember how many weeks. It's a, it's a few weeks. I know they're only available uh, to Arctic foxes for um, a few weeks in the in the winter time. Some start earlier and finish earlier, and some start a little bit later and finish later. Um, but uh, but yeah, March April ish. Oh yeah. And so like a lot of from what I can understand, a lot of your studies and research is because of these denning sites. What is the objective? What, what are you trying to find out? Maybe uh, what's the small picture? And then maybe you can get into like, what's the big picture um, idea here? Yeah, well, there's a lot of different things. So I'm just really interested in understanding um, how species interact, how one species affects another, uh, both directly and indirectly. Um, seals and so lemmings, I mentioned, these numbers go up and down. When lemmings become abundant, they, uh, they get uh, a lot more predators. And when the, then these lemmings crash, you got these predators that have no lemmings to eat. So they start switching them and feeding on other things. So bird reproductive success is tied into the lemming population cycle. Uh, even though they never come into direct contact, they don't feed on the same things. Um, they don't compete. Um, they don't interact directly, but they share a predator. And so the effect of one species on predator numbers is going to affect the predation rate on, on the other. So these indirect effects in food web is fascinating. I think they're really cool. But we can also get these occurring across ecosystem boundaries. So we found that some years, um, there's a, a, polar bears have really good hunting success. There's a lot of seals around. They're very accessible because they have good ice conditions. They eat a lot and they get really fat. And those years, they leave a lot of food behind for the foxes. So we found that years the polar bears are fat, you get more foxes in the harvest. Uh, so fat polar bears means, means lots of foxes. And so that should also mean that these abundant predators are going to have a negative effect on their terrestrial prey. So that's another thing we're just starting to look at. We've got a long enough data set, we think we'll be able to look how green resources are affecting terrestrial prey because of this predator that moved back and forth. And so that's something I think is even, even more fascinating, even more cool, how you get these interactions between species and completely different ecosystems, marine versus terrestrial that are coming up. Now, um, I get excited about this stuff just because I think it's cool. I think it's fun and interesting. I am fortunate that, that I work in an area that there's a lot of interest uh, in from a conservation perspective. And I work on species that there's a lot of interest um, from a management perspective. Uh, the fur bearers that I work on, the, the, the waterfowl, um, there's a lot of interest in waterfowl uh, for hunting. Um, so uh, hopefully some of the things that I'm under, trying to figure out and understand um, have some conservation and management benefits. Um, you know, as the, the uh, north is warming even more rapidly than the rest of, of the earth, um, they were having seen big changes in the Arctic. 
as we are um, losing sea ice and losing snow cover, at least in the duration of, of sea ice and the duration of snow cover. Um, and so I'm trying to understand how these changes are affecting these species interactions. But honestly, the reason I do it is just because I think it's cool. <laughs> Hopefully somebody do something useful with that, it'd be great. But I'm doing it just because I think it's really fascinating. And I just really like, so there's a, you get this difference between basic research and applied research. Basic research, you're just trying to understand the way the world works. Applied research, you're trying to solve problems or do something useful. Um, and I really do fall in terms of my, the reason I'm doing it on the basic research side. But it's always nice if I can share something with somebody who's going to hopefully do something. That's that's super interesting. I, th- I think I, I did a little bit of reading on, on some of your projects here too. And I think one of the the more interesting uh, relationships here that I found interesting anyways was uh, the relationship to the, the lemmings home in the wintertime to where obviously are fox dens, right? Is, is what I read, yes. if that's not correct. And then it, I, I, just, I think about it, I'm like, so the foxes are killing these lemmings, but it's creating this ecosystem that's giving them a place to survive and thrive through these harsh winters that the they have in the north and it's just when i think about it in like my own terms would be because because we we Sheldon and i are, are obviously hunters so it'd be like us going out and shooting a couple deer and and then come winter time be like doors open water dishes in the sink here help yourself we're gonna take off for the winter we're going down south and we'll see you guys in the spring <laughs> take good care of yourselves because we're gonna be hungry again this fall well yeah it is a bizarre bizarre situation so um when i got my job here in winnipeg and started to go back up to churchill really wanted to look more at these um lemmings when i was a grad student working up there i was i was catching them in the summer and estimating their their density and their distribution but i want to start looking at them in winter and so these lemmings they really need deep soft fluffy snow um in the winter they live uh in the bottom layer of snow um above the ground but under the snow because the the snow basically keeps them warm it provides uh, thermal insulation so it can be minus 40 um, outside but it'll be almost freezing down right close to the ground if they have enough enough uh, snow so these lemmings they don't come out above ground they, they make these little tunnels in the significant layer of the snow um, look for food and they make these nests they, they take grass and they make these nests and then they curl up and sleep in them sometimes they give birth in these in these winter nests so when the snow melts you see these little balls of grass out on the tundra um, which are their nests. So you can understand something about the distribution and abundance of lemmings in the winter based on where you find their nests once the uh, snow melts. So we started looking for these winter nests and trying to measure their abundance. And, and one of my grad students, you know, we we're also visiting all the fox dens in, in the area and trying to assess what's going on with the foxes, the reproduction, their activity. And one of my grad students pointed out, you know, we keep seeing these little lemming nests on fox dens. And I thought, yeah. That seems like a really stupid place for a lemming to hang out on the home of a major predator. So what the heck is going on? So I actually got another grad student um, who was interested in this, came up, and for her thesis, she was trying to trying to answer that question. Um, and so what we find is that um, there's more vegetation on these dens than off the dens. Um, the vegetation is more nutritious because all the nutrients in the soil. Um, a lot of herbivores, deer and other herbivores will be attracted to the most nutrient-rich vegetation or the most nutrient-rich parts of the plants. Um, <clears throat> caribou, we find, as I mentioned, munching on these the vegetation in these dens, <laughs> which we think is because it's still nutrient-rich. So lemmings like it too, but they also, because you got all this vegetation, um, it traps snow. So you get much deeper snow in these dens. 
And so the lemmings like to hang out because it makes a very favorable microclimate. Now we think though, so, but then the question is what happens to these lemmings once they're brought onto the dam? Um, do they actually benefit from this favorable microclimate or is it what we call an ecological trap? These crafty, these crafty foxes changing the environment to lure the, the lemmings in so they can have a snack. And what we, what we think is that um, it might depend on um, what phase of the lemming cycle there are. Predation risk uh, might change depending on the phase of the lemming. So if lemmings are abundant, the foxes will stay um, in their dens all winter long. They, they, their, their summer home range has plenty of food, no need to go anywhere else. But when lemming populations crash, these foxes, that's when we think they become nomadic. They water long distances, they'll move out in the sea ice, follow polar bears around in the sea ice, looking for seals or seal remains to scavenge on. Um, so that might be when it's okay to be a lemming hanging out on a fox den. Foxes mm -hmm. aren't there, they left. And we find actually that the density of winter nests on the dens is pretty constant from year to year. Even though off the dens, we know lemming numbers going up and down. And up. So if, if, if things are good, um, sorry, if things are bad for the lemmings, there's not that many lemmings around in the landscape, foxes take off. And so the fox dens become a nice little refuge. Lots of food, high quality food, deep snow, nice little home. We find another graduate student who was looking at um, winter reproduction in lemmings and found that when we, when we pluck apart these winter nests, you can tell if the lemmings have reproduced, have given birth inside them, if they've had little babies in them. Some other um, astute researchers pointed out that baby lemmings make baby turds. And so you can look at the size distribution of their fecal pellets. And if you have lots of little fecal pellets, then that means they, they reproduced. And we found that, that they're much more likely to reproduce in the nest on a fox den than in our transects away from the den. So yeah, there's, it's a really fascinating little system. It's, it's really bizarre. So it kind of makes you think, yes, foxes are important predators on lemmings and lots of other critters, but they are altering this habitat, this, this microenvironment that's beneficial to lemmings. So you, you kind of need to consider both roles, the roles as predators and the role of as ecosystem engineers to understand their overall role um, in the community. In the mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I thought that was bizarre too. We were, we were, we were floored. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. And, and so um, I'm, I'm curious as to the reproduction rate of these lemmings too. Like, is there, when you say the lemmings have good years, is the population just that high that they'll be, um populated on these dens um to to sustain that that uh fox family or do they reproduce so often throughout the winter that that they maintain that their that food source that way yeah so so normally i don't know how often it is that they hang out on, on fox dens throughout um uh, most of the area i haven't heard that described elsewhere um but if they reproduce at their maximum, lemming numbers can can take off. Mm. Uh, they they reproduce. I can't remember exactly how many every every couple of weeks they can produce a, a litter. Oh, really? And grow up, and then those as as actually as soon as the um, mm. lemmings are born, the females can mate and get pregnant, and so they're gestating and lactating at the same time. Oh, wow! Um, and if there's enough food in the landscape, then they just munch and uh, are are weaning their, their one litter while they're um, growing the next one. So the population can, can really take off. But um, the winter, they really need that thick, soft, fluffy snow uh, to survive in winter. 
and with uh, the Arctic uh, becoming much winter becoming much more mild, we have more freeze thaw cycles. That's actually changing the um, uh, condition of the snow. Mm -hmm. It's not as as uh, it doesn't provide as much thermal protection. And we're in many parts of the Arctic, we're no longer getting seen lemmings reach those really high peak abundances um, that they did historically. And, and the main reason is probably because of changes in, in conditions in the winter. Uh, when lemmings are, are in, a, in a crash phase, they don't reproduce in the winter, but when the, the winter reproduction is really start to, thought to stimulate uh, their increase phase. And um, so if conditions aren't good in the winter, they're not going to not going to reproduce for most most animals most wildlife um if if conditions get bad the first thing um that's going to stop is reproduction eventually survival will go down um but they'll stop reproducing first so so yeah so these lemmings we're, we're not finding so in our study area when i was a grad student we would, our peak densities would be uh uh, 12 per hectare, so 100 meters by 100 meters, 12. Uh, if you look back in the old ecological literature uh, up in Churchill, you'd get you'd get 50 or 60 per hectare um, in, a, in a peak year. And now a, a good year, we're getting two, two per hectare. Uh, and uh, and some years we're close to zero. So they've really got this damped oscillation. And I think that's having a huge effect on lots of species on the tundra. Pretty much all the wildlife on the tundra either eats lemmings or is eaten by lemming predators. So these big changes in abundance would have a big impact on lots of the species. Predator numbers would take off, then the lemmings would crash and, and everything else would get nailed by these predators. And now we're just seeing very mild little fluctuations, um, probably because of these changing snow conditions. That's pretty wild. That, that's, that's interesting to see because like that was a really good breakdown of how like at a local level those uh, the foxes and the, that relationship was. And then as a, a large larger scale habitat ecosystem level what kind of effects they have here um i'm also curious as to like the the overlap these foxes have with uh you know uh obviously churchill's there's lots of red foxes lots of arctic foxes there is there a, is there a, um any sort of limitation to how far north the red foxes will go before the, that overlap is no longer existent that's a great question. So, um, yeah, this interaction with the Arctic foxes and red foxes has been of interest in, uh, for, for a number of years um, by people throughout, working throughout the north. A lot of work over in, in, in Scandinavia, um, especially where, where Arctic foxes uh, were, were, numbers were reduced a lot um, by some over-harvesting about 100 years ago, and they haven't recovered, and it's thought because the red foxes are now preventing from uh, uh, recovering, but uh, <clears throat> but yeah, it's the the reason that red foxes don't occur farther north is they don't have all those adaptations for dealing with cold, uh, like we discussed earlier. The Arctic foxes have, um, so it's the abiotic conditions, the climate that is kind of the northern limit. But the reason you don't have Arctic foxes extending further south isn't because it gets too warm, isn't because they can't deal with with the climate. It's because they run into red foxes. So red foxes are what determines the southern edge of the distribution of Arctic foxes. And so with climate getting becoming more mild, now we have had red foxes occur um, in the Arctic since uh, Europeans um, started bringing in trading posts and started bringing, bringing well, resources that would subsidize uh, red foxes, but not in any numbers that they had any 
much of an impact. But with the climate becoming more mild, we are seeing increased densities of red foxes um, on the tundra. And so the prediction is that, yeah, these, these red foxes are going to move north, increase in numbers in the north, and that's going to be um, not great news uh, for the Arctic foxes. And we are finding in the Churchill area a lot more red foxes in the tundra than I never saw uh, when I first started going as a graduate student. Hmm. Interesting. So do you think the relationship to like the the temperature for the red foxes and obviously like you said you, you still find the odd one really far north but is it you think the the population density is so low because of um like you were alluding to earlier that the conditions have to be good for an animal to reproduce and since red fox maybe doesn't have the proper adaptations to really thrive in these environments that they don't thrive as a population well, okay, so that's a great that's a great point. So this is a situation where I do think it's overwinter survival that has historically limited where the red foxes can persist. There's some other other data that show uh, from from Europe and Asia this that look at a bunch of different populations, and the density of the population is strongly related to winter temperatures. So where, where it gets mm. really cold in the winter, you don't find nearly as many. Where it gets warmer in the winter, you'll find. Um, greater numbers of red foxes. So that suggests in areas where it's becoming warmer that the numbers of red foxes uh, should be increasing. So that's what we're predicting uh, we're gonna find up in Churchill. Now, we, we, we've, there's some dens, um, you know, I used to find just right, it's pretty much where you find red fox dens versus arctic fox dens was based on tree line. Dens out of the tundras where you found the arctic fox dens, dens in and amongst the, the forest is where you'd find the red foxes. But we're finding um, more and more that there's about outside Wolpus National Park. Um, before you get to town, there's what I consider real tundra habitat. It's about 15 dens, and we've only found the last couple of years red foxes in these dens, where I used to find only arctic foxes. Um, and so we were, that's one of the questions we've been really interested in. These red foxes um, expanding on the tundra, how's that going to affect uh, arctic foxes? And we're still trying to figure that out. Um, but what we do, one uh, thought we've had is that Arctic fox numbers, actually there's a long-term decline in Arctic foxes in Churchill uh, based on harvest records. So if you look at the number of Arctic foxes harvested over the last 60 or 70 years, um, there has been a trend for a declining, significant trend. Hmm. Um, lots of annual variations, you get good years and bad years still, so lots of um, ups and downs. But if, and I was shocked actually when one of my grad students got hold of these data and plotted a line and showed that there was a long-term decline because you don't see it on a year-to-year -year basis. It's only when you look at these you know, multi multiple decades that you see this long-term decline in Arctic fox numbers. And what we think though it, it's not probably due to red foxes it's more due to what's going on with the lemmings right with the sea ice we found that good lemming years you get more foxes uh, and bad lemming years you get fewer foxes we found that years the polar bears are really fat because conditions are good on the sea ice you get more arctic foxes and when the polar bears are skinny you don't get as many arctic foxes uh the fall and winter and so i really think the arctic fox population is being affected by by changes in the ice, which affects their ability to feed on seals, and changes in snow, which are affecting the availability and number of lemmings. And so we're seeing this long-term impact um, on the Arctic fox population. So it could be the red foxes are just take advantage. You've got all mm -hmm. these empty dens on the tundra because there's not many, as many Arctic foxes out there. So they're just moving out and escaping uh, uh, 
or getting to areas where they're less likely to run into maybe people, um, or it could be other other red foxes. We know that red foxes, these red foxes are, are interesting. I haven't figured them out. I've got a pretty good handle what's going on with the, with the Arctic foxes. I think I understand them pretty well. But these red foxes, I don't know, they're smarter than I am, I think. Uh, they're really secretive. They, uh, they don't leave as much evidence on the dens. These red Arctic fox dens will be covered with dead geese. We, I counted 72 geese feet on one den. Whoa. Um, uh, because they've been feeding, them, feeding their pups and had all these pups. Um, three of them had bands on them. The goose banner's been up there. Frank and his buddy's <laughs> been up there the previous couple of weeks. And uh, uh, Frank Baldwin, uh, you guys have interviewed in the past. Um, so, uh, but the red foxes, they just don't leave as much evidence behind. Uh, when we visit these dens in the wintertime, we're looking for evidence of, of activity on the dens, um, digging and urine and feces. And we can't find a fox turd on a red fox den most of the time, hmm. you know? Don't poop or eat. I think those red foxes have figured that out. The Arctic foxes have not figured that out. There's all kinds of stuff all over these dens. But then when we look at these fox carcasses, the red foxes are full of parasites. They, they contaminate their food and they consume it um, because they're pooping everywhere and eating the same place. And these red foxes, that's what we have suggested is an anti-parasite strategy. Go poop somewhere else not where you've got your food. And so yeah, really interesting comparisons uh, between these two species, close related species, but different life histories. Red foxes are larger on average, but smaller litters, more secretive, don't like us getting too close to the dens. A lot of times the red fox, the Arctic foxes, they're fine. They just sit there and let you sneak up with your camera and get really pretty. But the Arctic foxes or those red foxes are pretty different. Still trying to understand what's going on. <laughs> speaking of all the like litter sizes and stuff like that i was gonna ask you a quick question about kind of like the fox family so you said that these den denning sites etc getting used over hundreds of years is that usually the same same um like family or is it is it just random fox different pairs of foxes every time or have you guys found any of that out yeah that's a great great question well these foxes only live three or four years on average i mean they can live up to 10 years um, but whether they, the offspring inherit it, I think in other parts of the range that does happen, what we found actually is that there's an awful lot of movement of these foxes. They don't stick around very long in the same place, if, if, especially in recent years. In the winter, as the food availability is really low, they just take off. So most of the foxes that we've actually captured have not stayed around in Wilpose National Park. They'll Arctic fossil go up to um, go out on the bay, go visit Quebec, um, or go up to Nunavut, or go sometimes go down, down to Ontario um but uh yeah they're not they're not really sticking around so it's probably so that probably means that there are other foxes from elsewhere moving in um to our area as well so they because dispersal is so easy movement is so easy in the wintertime all the, the ice freezes and the snow falls on the ground they can move huge distances there's just a lot of movement um not a whole lot of of uh, the genetics uh, people have looked at the genetics of these foxes and it looks like it's one big um Panmictic population. They're all mixing. They're all, there's a lot of gene huh. flow between here, there, and everywhere. Not a lot of um, genetic structure. Um, so, probably they're, because they've got these really long distance movements, they're probably not sticking around and inheriting. I mean, if the parents did stick around, they've got 10 pups on average that are looking to inherit uh, the den. So, I think there's a little bit of sibling rivalry probably um, going on, affecting their movements as well. They want to move out and find, find new areas um, where there's more food. Uh, and suitable dinner and habitat. So, so those those foxes that that you, you guys have GPS collared and, and gone to Quebec, they they go there and they stay there. Is that correct? 
or will they um, also return? Our, our collars will only last about a year. Right. So, so we don't know how long one of them stayed in Quebec. One of them went up to Southampton Island. One of them died in the middle of Hudson Bay. Um, so those are the, the three that went out of that direction, that, that distance. Gotcha. Um, I guess, I guess what I, what I'm trying to like, I, I'm used to, I, I've done, uh, a, a fair amount of work with, uh, with polar bear biologists and generally the, the Western Hudson Bay population, they go out and they can go and travel to, uh, the odd one will go to Iceland or whatever, but they'll generally come back to the same area come yes. thaw. So yeah, I'm just exactly. curious if that was the same as foxes or if the foxes just went and, and, and yeah, that's the polar bears. Yeah. The polar bears are fascinating. Cause you're right. They will go out and move big distance all across Hudson Bay and then come back. Um, the next, when the ice melts the next, you know, late June and kind of hang out on shore and end up being pretty much in the same area. And that's why they are able to have these polar bear, populations to find even though i think there's probably some mixing again mm -hmm. um, winter time but for the foxes i don't think they i think they might occasionally come back i think there has been some evidence so other people have found um they'll go out um spend a year over there a year over there and then come back um, over a really broad area but but eventually end up back where they started in the in the same kind of um, denning area but uh it's not a regular thing it's just i think just yeah they're just kind of moving all over the place. Sometimes they come back to where they started, but it's not a, a programmed thing for them. Like I think it is probably for the polar bears. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. The The other thing I was going to mention to you too there, Jim, um, I know with like a lot of other people we've had on the podcast that are kind of uh, experts in their field, they always say like, you kind of have to talk to the people that are putting boots on the ground. Um, you do a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but maybe you do a bit of work with uh, some of the local residents of Churchill or, in that area of trappers and stuff, what significance do they have on the research that you, you've been doing up there? Well, yeah, no, I really like talking to the guys um, who were on the ground. They're, they're the ones that are going out and spending time on the land and making observations and, and have ideas about what we be driving uh, some of the changes or, or, or not changes, you know, I'm just interested in, in hearing what they have to say. Um, but the trappers in particular, because we, we uh, we do uh, work with them because because usually you know they'll catch a catch a critter take the pelt and then you know throw the carcass back in the bush and and so I'm like well can we have that and so we actually have actively tried to get uh, these fox carcasses and then a couple other species we've looked at as well um, because we can take tissue samples from them you can learn a lot from a dead animal you know we can get samples of, of all kinds of different tissues we, we can look at feces. We get information on, on genetics and on parasites and on hormone concentrations, on uh, contaminants. We're looking at mercury concentrations right now and how those might be affected by, by um, uh, uh, your diet. Uh, so part of our diet reconstruction is looking at, look at contaminant concentrations as well and the relationships between those, those things. Um, yeah, if I had to go out and catch all the foxes myself, there's no way I'd be able to do that. So it's, it's a huge, it's a for me, it's a wonderful partnership. Um, uh, as, as those guys are out, you know, doing what they do and, and are, are contributing to our, our research program. And yeah, fundamentally important. And it gives me an excuse then to go talk to them, um, you know, getting collecting carcasses. The research station up in Churchill helps us a lot with that as well. Uh, because, you know, I come up for a couple weeks at a time, three times a year or hopefully three or four weeks if I get lucky. Um, but uh, they're there year round 
and they see you know seasonal changes and annual changes and then when i go to visit them to talk about you know trying to get these carcasses um get a chance to talk to them about their their experiences and so that's no that's that's great that's a I think are really valuable and I'm happy to share with them as well. Some things that, that I found if they're interested in, in, you know, what, what this guy from the South is, is, is thinks he's figured out. I'm, I'm happy to talk to, talk to him and share information. So no, I think it's a, it's a tremendous partnership between the scientists who really can't a lot of times get ideas from the, from the locals and well, lots of assistance. One kind of thing I, I was interested in, um, it was one of the it's under a website I was I was reading and it was one of the studies you, you were a part of. Um and it was had something to do with the the reproduction of like white spruce regarding like fox denning. Oh and I'm so, I'm really interested yes. and I'm I'm like I'm thinking and I'm I'm not quite I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle to put together here, but like this whole predator denning food resource kind of tail really reminds me of, of something that i kind of i kind of uh seen on a i think it was a national geographic documentary or something where on the west coast where the bears and the wolves were predating on salmon the the rainforest along the river there is just thriving like it thrives in no other spot so i i imagine thinking of these foxes being like the mini wolves and the mini bears and the predators that are having this this uh <coughs> impact on on the ecosystem here although it might not be as great or not as visual as you can see over there so yeah and that's a great point as well so yes these these um foxes and the thunder are very striking it's it's a very clear direct impact that they're having because you can see this bright green spot and you can't see these dens uh, in the forest uh, from the air because there's trees in the way. Um, and uh, yeah, I got I got one of the helicopter pilots to, to fly over where I knew with my GPS, there was a red fox down on the ground and we hovered and I looked, I couldn't see it. Um, it just didn't have the same visual um, impact um, that the dens on the tundra um, have. But we started, um, when we were focusing on these Arctic fox dens and realizing these red foxes red foxes are moving into these dens in the tundra well the red foxes have the same impact as ecosystem into these arctic foxes i do their their dens are smaller they don't uh they don't poop on their dens the same way that the, that the arctic foxes do and so we started wondering if red foxes could be acting in a, a similar way so we started first looking at the red fox dens uh in the forest and so another graduate student a colleague of mine a plant ecologist in her apartment who's been involved in all this research as well and uh started looking at the, the red fox dens in the forest and found that yes, you get a similar effect. You have great different plant species growing up, higher nitrogen, uh, nitrogen and phosphorus concentrations in the soils on the dens compared to uh, off-den sites. And, but then we started thinking, well, there's, there, there's a big difference between the forest and the tundra and there's trees in the forest. And so what's going on with these trees? in the, that are growing up around the tundra. So what we found was I had a, a grad student who was looking at tree growth. You take a tree core and you look at the width of the tree rings and they're bigger if the trees are growing up on a fox den than if they're elsewhere in the forest. So foxes, red foxes in the forest are making trees grow bigger. Hmm. That's just bizarre. So I thought that was really, really fascinating. Um, and then we had another grad student who started looking at reproduction. And 
So counting cones, um, you can take a picture certain way, certain distance, um, and uh, quantify cone production um, of these uh, spruce trees in the forest. And yes, uh, the foxes are making this, the trees reproduce more as well. So here on the on, we're pretty much on tree line. You can make the argument that uh, certainly climate has a has a big effect on tree line, but uh, if trees are growing faster and bigger and reproducing more uh, when the foxes are are fertilizing them, maybe that could have an impact on encroachment trees. So yeah, that's been a that's been a fun tie-in looking at at these forest interactions related to foxes. So we think that yes, maybe if the if the red foxes are gonna uh, kind of taken over the, the tundra uh, in areas that they will potentially have a similar impact. Hmm. They, uh, they don't produce as many pups, but they are bigger. So maybe the overall biomass of food that they're providing their pups could be somewhat similar. Well, right on. I'm gonna, I don't even know how to wrap this one up because it seems like I still have like a million questions about, about this little animal and I'm sure probably Chase says too, but I guess I kind of, my kind of my last question is uh, for you before we start wrapping it up is, the project that you are doing, where can people find them, find out what you're doing? Is there any like interactive stuff that they can, you know, see pictures or, or links to cameras or anything like that? Do you have any? Uh, we are developing a website um, that will have some of, some of our uh, uh, photos. Um, I don't think it's quite become public. I've got some very enthusiastic students, uh, grad students are putting this together because we do want to share uh, with people some of the some of the things that we're finding. So I guess I'll just have to say, stay tuned um, on that one. Um, there have been some a few documentaries um, that have, have uh, uh, we've shared some of our, our research with and have filmed some of the things that are going out um, or going on with these foxes out in the tundra um, and now start, uh, getting involved in the forest as well. So uh, um, it's, it's, it's coming. We'll, we'll put all these things in one place and hopefully get these up fairly soon we're, we're having a my students are debating what our what our logo is going to look like right now and so <laughs> as soon as we get that really important issue solved uh, then this thing will be become live in, in probably the next few weeks as a matter of fact oh nice chase you got anything else for uh jim i was just gonna say don't wait too long on our logo because let me tell you <laughs> between the three of us it took months for us to figure out a logo <laughs> but uh but yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on, Jim. Um, certainly learned uh, a ton today about foxes, and and uh, uh, I I just think there uh, there's a lot more there than than I ever knew. Foxes were contributing to habitat and ecosystem and, and all that. So, well, yeah, it's just one of those classic things. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, and you just keep digging and finding different connections. And so it's been really been been fascinating. You know, going these pretty much these these different but directions, but how they're related, the food web, the predator prey interactions, but then also the ecosystem engineering and habitat alteration stuff, because that also impacts the other species as well. Mm -hmm. So it's been it's been fun, um, and uh, and yes, as we've expanded, including different species and different habitats. So yeah, I don't know where it's going to end up. We'll see. Right on. Well, again, like thanks a lot for coming onto the the podcast. It's always a pleasure to get uh, guys on or people on like yourself, or you have a lot of expertise, and we can just sit here and pick your brain because, uh, yeah, like I said, it seems like there's a million questions you can ask when it comes to certain things. And appreciate your time, and and maybe we'll get you on uh, someday soon, uh, right away, quick. Yeah, that that'd be fun. Yeah, no, I, I enjoy talking about this stuff, and because uh, I think it's yeah. 
fascinating. I like to get people excited um, about the things that I think are exciting as well. Right. Right on. Okay. Well, you have a good one, Jim, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Sheldon. Thanks for listening in to episode 86, folks, with Jim Roth. Thanks to Jim for uh, coming on and um, joining us again. That was a great conversation. I always love chatting with guys like Jim. Um, before we leave you, though, always got to remind you, if you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend um, and head over to whatever platform you're listening to us on here today and uh, give us a rating, leave us a review. And, uh, yeah, that goes a long way for, for continuing the growth of, uh, of the podcast here. Tristan, what do you got on our end? Oh, also, don't forget about Sheldon's giveaway on social media. Shelly's uh, been monitoring the panoramic Instagram account here. You tag us in a photo or uh, mention us with you outdoors. We're giving away free hat every week here all summer. All summer long, that's going on. And if you guys are interested in getting your hands on any more of our clothing, we just have uh, new tanks that hit the store, and uh, we have some ladies' sweaters. And I got to say, they're probably, I haven't squeezed into one yet, but, uh, you know, I did some (laughs) (laughs) some product photos with them, and they are one of the comfiest pieces of clothing that I've ever handled, so... Uh, if you, if any ladies out there looking for something super comfy to wear, we got some scoop neck sweaters in, and uh, you're gonna love them for summer. We also have, I think, two coffee cups left in the store. We might I have to go digging through the uh, the apparel there, but we might have a couple more. We'll see. But uh, if you want to get your hands on one, we only have those two left, I believe. So check them out. Get a package. Together. Those things flew off the shelf. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, they didn't Appreciate last long. Appreciate the support, everyone. Absolutely, they didn't last long. So, anyways, folks, Tristan, you got any th- final words before we say sayonara? Well, I haven't met a dull Leatherman, but it's always best to keep that thing sharp, keep those lines tight, and keep the powder dry. Right on. We'll catch you guys on the next one. <laughs>